Hello and welcome to this episode of the Pan-African Review Podcast. We are still talking about the liberation of the African continent. And this is the second part on the conversation on reflections on African liberation movement article that was written by Dr. Goloba Mutebi. If you haven't had a chance to listen to the first part of this conversation, make sure you do, because there Dr. Goloba shares three examples of liberation movements which he thinks have been rather successful on the African continent. Some argue, though, that the liberation movement in Ethiopia might not have been a successful one, considering the current situation in Ethiopia. I asked Dr. Goloba to tell us what he thinks might have gone wrong. What do you say about the current situation in Ethiopia? Because you had mentioned the movement in Ethiopia as one of the successful ones. What then do you make of all the changes that have lately happened? I think what happened in Ethiopia is that uh, the EPRDF uh, lost some of its internal discipline, which had enabled it to win power. Uh, Because the more uh, one speaks to Ethiopians, the more one gets to hear that the EPRDF became dominated by this small group from Tigray. And... uh, corruption set in and they used national resources to develop their part of the country more than the other parts. So while they were talking about unity and inclusion, in actual fact, their behavior, at least according to what one hears from Ethiopians, suggested that inclusion and unity were just words they used, but their behavior showed that they were actually much more inclined uh, to do things that benefited Tigray rather than the entire country. But also, Ethiopia is a highly troubled policy as far as I'm concerned, in, in that it has a lot of groups in it that are not happy being in that union, that would like not only more autonomy, but that also would like to break away. And I think that the EPRDF, uh, the longer it stayed in power, the more it came up against these contradiction, the, the contradictions, that there were groups which were becoming more and more unhappy with the arrangements as they were, and that sought to have more autonomy, sought actually even to break out of the country. So then it resorts to repressive methods. And uh, you can see that as long as Melis Zenawi was around, he could hold the group together. But once he passed away, it became more and more difficult to hold it together. It became more and more difficult to maintain the dominance of the Tigrayans, which had uh, emerged and got consolidated under his rule. And you can see what has happened. That's how it fell apart. So one of the challenges that liberation movements face is the challenge of sustainability. Can they sustain the inclusion? Can they sustain the consensus? And this, of course, is a question that we increasingly ask ourselves about the RPF and the consensus system it has created in Rwanda. How durable is it? How sustainable is it? As of now, as of now, it looks solid, it looks strong. Um, I speak a lot to politicians across uh, the different political parties. They seem to be content with the way things are going because they trust the RPF to keep its promises that it made to them. Now, I think that the challenge will come in when the second generation of leaders take over from the current generation. Will this be sustainable? We really don't know. But that's a challenge that all liberation movements have faced. It is the same question for the Eritreans. The last time I was there, I was asking the veteran leaders of Eritrea, when are they retiring and what will happen once they are gone? 
And they said, well, we have a generation of leaders that we trust to take this forward. But of course, they can't promise that those new people will be will have the same motivations and the same ambitions as they, as they have had. So it's a challenge that uh, makes uh, things... It, it, one can't be so sure what will happen after the first generation has gone. One can pose the same question about the ANC in South Africa. Will the second generation hold South Africa together as the, the, the current generation of ANC leaders has? You, you actually have just mentioned about Eritrea, and it's interesting because they haven't held elections in a very, very long time. So when they say there is a generation coming that might take it up, then who are those people? Or how do Eritreans themselves know who those people are? I, I think if you spoke to ordinary Eritreans, they are unlikely to know. At least they are unlikely to know the names of the people being uh, mentioned as the next generation. The academics and members of the party, sort of those in their 30s and 40s, they can tell you uh, that, yes, there is a generation that is likely to come to power and that is probably going to manage things in the way the current generation is managing them. Now, you mentioned them not having held elections for the last, uh, for all the period they have been in power. That's true. But um, the explanation they give you for that is that they have literally been at war with Ethiopia, even when there has been no shooting war. There has been a war of sorts. And they've yeah. always been um, bracing themselves for when the Ethiopians may attack them next. First of all, for them to hold elections, they must have a new constitution. And in 1997, as they were talking of coming up with a new constitution, that is when tensions with Ethiopia grew so high. And as we saw in 1998, war broke out. And since yeah. then, the state of uh, a state of war, even psychologically. And they say that you can't carry out constitutional reforms. You can't hold elections when a country is on alert, uh, 24 hours a day. You know, when people feel, well, we have to watch the Ethiopians, they could attack any time. So um, actually what they were telling me when I was there, that once uh, the situation in Ethiopia stabilizes and they're sure that the uh, war situation or the tensions have now uh, disappeared, then they will turn to internal matters, uh, come up with a constitution that they, were, uh, they had embarked on putting in place, and then think of... Uh, the current generation of leaders retiring, you'd be surprised that the vast majority of Eritrea's leaders today are in their 70s. You also mentioned in the article about Ethiopia and how you can see who's coming up next as if they're handing over the baton. And at the same time, you said that's where now it gets a little complicated for RPF because you really don't know what's coming next. But why is it not obvious for RPF, though? It's, it's going to three decades already. Well, for me, what is obvious uh, with the RPF is that when I sit, and I've been privileged enough, even before I became a Rwandan national, I had the privilege of sitting in RPF meetings as an observer. They were very kind to allow me to sit in. And I always tell people that when I sit in an RPF uh, meeting, I am able to see who the next leaders are going to be. The next generation, you can see them. 
if you look at Rwanda's public bodies, ministries and agencies and departments, you see that the people leading them now and in their late 30s, early 40s, and you, it's almost like a conveyor belt. You can see people retiring, but you see also people coming up. <clears throat> Rwanda has a fairly young cabinet. So for me, I'm able to say at least the next generation is visible. You can see them. Now, it's not, I, I couldn't possibly say, well, so-and-so is going to be the next president or next prime minister or next minister or whatever, but I can see a group of people of a particular age group who I think are going to be Rwanda's next generation of leaders. Now, the question for me, and I have put this to some of the RPF's leaders, is how are they going to guarantee that these people are going to have the same motivations, the same determination to do the things that the current leadership has done. And they all say there is no guarantee. But they keep hoping that by the time they retire, they would have set in place, uh, they have built the foundation on which the next generation is also going to build. And that even if we may not expect them to behave the same way, there will be a few differences. For instance, I personally don't think that Rwanda will get another Kagame. I think people like President Kagame come once in a while. But I keep hoping that the RPF, uh, being the strong organization that it is, it will produce leaders that will lead Rwanda pretty much in the same decent way that the current leaders have done. My last question is about what you said on the success of a liberation movement. You said success for a liberation movement does not really uh, lie simply on measuring it up to international standards. So then how do we measure? There's no one size fits all, I guess, but what then determines a successful one? I think we should measure success against the promises they made when they were fighting to take over power. What did they promise to deliver? Um, for instance, uh, I think that the RPF promised uh, inclusion. The RPF promised uh, democracy. Now, is Rwanda a democracy? I'd like to, I'd like to hear that, <laughs> your argument. <laughs> My argument has always been that like all African countries, Rwanda is a democracy in the making. It is, it, it is still developing towards <laughs> the ideal democracy that people would like it to be, but it's not going to get there overnight. Democracy is not like a bulb that you switch on, you switch on by uh, sort of uh, tweaking a switch. Democracy is a process. Now, for me, when I look at Rwanda, and I think that fundamentally, if you look at Rwanda from the bottom up, Rwanda has very, very strong democratic elements that are even are lacking in countries that we are told are model democracies in Africa. I see a great deal of decision-making by ordinary Rwandans about their own lives. I see a great deal of consultation of ordinary people by leaders. I see a great deal of engagement. I have sat in a lot of meetings here, the annual national dialogue, I've sat in the leadership retreats, and you can see that consultation is not just an abstract idea. This happens in practice. So will Rwanda come to a point where we have different political parties vying for power in the way they do it in liberal democracies? I would like to think so. But I really do not think that Rwanda should be stampeded into getting there. It should get there organically, slowly, in ways that Rwandans understand so that nobody is left behind. 
Now, my contention would be that let's, a, a successful liberation movement is one that delivers on the promises it made and that we don't have to judge them using so-called international standards or best practice. We should judge them on their own merits. And I think that, uh, again, if you look at Rwanda, they promised inclusion. There is inclusion. They promised to lift the standards of ordinary people or the standards of living of ordinary people. I think they have gone a very long way towards doing that. It's not easy to achieve. Rwanda doesn't have so many natural resources or lots of money. But my view is that they have done very well with the limited resources they have. So that would be uh, my argument. Thank you so much, Dr. Goloba, for this. Thanks, uh, Cynthia. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the Pan-African Review podcast. Make sure that you subscribe and get your online version or your printed copy. See you next time.